Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. In this episode, our very own Stephanie Lin, LPRC research scientist, discuss offender perspectives, interviews, past projects, and much more with our co-hosts. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. All right, well, welcome everybody again to another episode of Crime Science, uh, the podcast brought to you by the Loss Prevention Research Council, LPRC. Um, and I'm Reed Hayes from the University of Florida, and uh, I'd like to introduce my uh, co-host today, Tom Meehan, um, Vice President of Control Tech and longtime LPAP practitioner. Tom, if you'd go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, Reed. Thanks for, for the intro. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening to everyone listening. I know that everybody's listening at different times. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Crime Science Podcast, and we're really excited today uh, to have a member of the LPRC joining us and talking about the offender interview process. So, uh, Reed, I'll turn it over to you for the introduction uh, for Stephanie. Sounds good, Tom. Um, so today um, we're joined uh, by an LPRC team member, a colleague, uh, Stephanie Lynn, and Stephanie is a research scientist at the LPRC Um and uh, in that capacity, our research scientists, of course, um, put together uh, and design, conduct, analyze, and report um, research that is meaningful and uh, hopefully is rigorous and, of course, most importantly, is actionable by LPRC members. And as many of you know, we're up at, at the 70 uh, retail chain range right now uh, and continuing to grow. Um, so the, the LPRC community is growing, uh, as well as over 70 solution partners and half a dozen major manufacturers like Procter & Gamble and Bacardi. Um, and so in this capacity, as we mentioned, Stephanie, what she does is she uh, facilitates working groups um, that are ongoing working groups of retailers and other practitioners throughout the year on special issues. Uh, they will come up with projects that they would like to know more about. Um, hey, we would like to better understand uh, in-store or online uh, retail fraud uh, in this particular situation or problem that we're having, uh, or we're having a, uh, we'd like to understand and uh, be able to conduct better data analysis on our own, things that we'd like to know about um, what's going on in our business and, and uh, what we can do to get better at uh, reducing crime and loss. Um, and so then Stephanie can go and say, look, here are our options. You know, we can do a statistical analysis, we can conduct surveys, we can, or focus groups, um, we can conduct an experiment maybe and see what's going on, but it, uh, as well, uh, or in combination with all the above, um, we can conduct offender interviews. We wanna understand who the target audience is that we're trying to deter or disrupt or at least document um, as they initiate and progress crimes. Uh, and so Stephanie's uh, become quite the specialist at offender interviewing on our team. Um, so what I'll do is, Stephanie, can you very quickly, though, get a, give us an idea. When did you join the LPRC? Um, and uh, what was one of the first things that you took on after becoming a research scientist at LPRC? 
Um, good morning, good afternoon, good e- evening to everyone that's listening to the LPRC Crime Science Podcast. This is Stephanie Lin. I've been with the organization for a little over three years now. Um, I facilitate uh, a couple working groups at the LPRC, as well as conducting uh, dozens of research over the past three years that I've worked here. Um, the first thing that I took on as a research scientist after I joined the LPRC is probably, um, you know, facilitating a, a lot of working group, and that's in simultaneous with um, some research projects that I conduct at the time uh, within those working groups. So I, I do um, a little bit of each um, uh, over the past three years. And and uh, in, in summation, I've, uh, I've conducted uh, over, I think, over three dozens of them over the past couple of years. Uh, excellent. Um, and so what are the working groups you're in right now, Stephanie, that you uh, facilitate those working groups? Um, I facilitate the violent crime working groups, the data analytics working groups, as well as the retail fraud working groups. And on top of that, I also uh, facilitate the uh, anti-violence innovation chain. Um, So um, that's, yeah, that's it. I appreciate that. Um, Let me go over to you, Tom, and and get your sort of opening thoughts and uh, comments. So welcome, Stephanie. It's a very exciting topic for me, uh, being in my past and interviewing folks. I'm always very interested in the difference of a controlled interview that you're setting up versus, you know, a more spontaneous event. So I know that the listeners are eager to hear about it as well. Um, I remember when you started, and it's great to continue to work with you. I can't believe it's been three years. It feels like six months. So it's very exciting uh, to have you on the podcast. Um, And uh, also want to give you some kudos to the recent article that you wrote about the self-checkout. I, it's great to see some of that research and the things that you're doing getting out to a wider audience to really show the folks that aren't members of the LPRC uh, what some of the value is. Uh, I think it did. I, I, saw, I heard a lot of people talking about it. Um, you know, it's a small community, but it's a growing community, both in the industry of retail and asset protection. And I think the, the more exposure the LPRC has, the better people run through. Um, I, I would love to just jump right into the offender interviewing portion and, you know, ask some questions. But Reed, why don't I, I know that um, you have some intimate knowledge of some of these interviews that I haven't. So why don't you get started and then I'll, I'll chime in. Absolutely, Tom. So what I'll do is kind of frame it up. And uh, essentially what we're trying to do here is understand um why uh, people offend, of course, um, what kind of gets them started? Uh, Why did they become an offender in the first place? Why do they select certain types of theft or fraud or violent crime types? Why do they, in this case, gravitate to retail? Do they go to certain retailers or retail types um, or locations? Um, what, What do they target? Cash, merchandise, why, why not? Always, always, why, why not? Uh, we're looking for opportunities to treat, right? Just like in, in medicine. What is something we can learn so that we can change the equation so, those, so that uh, future offenders uh, decide not here, not now. Uh, I'm not going to initiate or I'm not going to keep going here. Um, and so that's really what Stephanie's doing. You mentioned, Tom, uh, a recent article she put out on self-checkout. We all know that... Um, the good shopper uh, increasingly wants lower and lower friction. They want what they want when they want it, and they want to be able to get out quickly and get back to work or home or elsewhere. Um, but that can come with a huge risk of 
in unintentional losses, uh, and these can be huge numbers, as well as, of course, theft and fraud. And so Stephanie was probing into that. And Stephanie, let me start there and say, um, you know, we know that all research involves sampling. We're trying to understand from a sample that's representative what's going on and what they think about or do and so forth. Uh, we know that um, measurement is important. We're trying to measure the right things and that it's accurate. We don't want to, if we're measuring, again, I've mentioned this before, the wind, uh, the wind speed or air temperature, we don't want to accidentally measure body temperature or a vehicle speed. So um, instrumentation is huge. And then uh, how we analyze, are we accurately assessing what we've got? Are we finding errors in the data? Um, are we correcting them or transforming the data so we can use them? So Stephanie, uh, in the case of self-checkout, Tell me a little bit about how you thought through the project, what you were trying to find out, and how you proceeded. So in that specific uh, self-checkout um, research interview, um, a retailer came up to us and identified that's one of the issues that they're experiencing, and they have um, started installing some technologies around the self-checkout areas to help them mitigate the risks of, uh, of shoplifting, sweethearting, and any sort of theft that goes through self-checkout. So um, from there, I... Um, I start some brainstorming process uh, or brainstorming with uh, with the retail counterparts and uh, draft draft up a, a, a interview questionnaire uh, targeting some specific focal questions where we wanted to get answers for um, a. Um, the way that we, um, it can be one question or several questions that we we want to answer in this type of research, uh, but the, the the questions that we ask in the questionnaire uh, should be the focal point uh, of that of that survey. So we develop uh, one or several hypotheses that we want to test. Um, the questions we include in our uh, questionnaire aim at uh, systemically testing these hypotheses. Um, so the questions we develop are usually um, really clear, concise, and direct uh, to ensure that uh, the, our tar target audience, uh, the offenders in this case, um, we can get the best possible answers from them. So um, we, we ask questions around, you know, how often they shoplift from self-checkout or conduct self-checkout fraud. Um, how is there any specific um, type of retailer they often visit? Uh, why those retailers, what makes them so vulnerable that they would, uh, you know, prefer this retailer rather than other retailers who have similar technologies or provide similar services? Um, we also ask them things around the lines of, you know, uh, what are your methods of stealing, your methods of operation? And most importantly, we wanted to understand what are some sort of measures uh, countermeasures and um, technologies or uh, implementations of additional staff that the, the stores can do to kind of mitigate and uh, prevent these people from, uh, you know, sh uh, shoplift from self-checkout in the future. So, um, and, and in terms of the recruiting process, it's a very interesting it's a very interesting topic to 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 research. Um, obviously, the self checkout um, has gained uh, a lot of prominence over the past couple of years. Many more retailers are using it now than years before, especially in the grocery chain. And um, and there is a growing issues apparently with the growing number of self self checkout uh, services providing by these retailers. So. 
And obviously, with growing um, growing popularity, there is growing um, concerns over theft uh, in these uh, in these areas. So I I, I start my recruiting process um, uh, with um, you know really actually dealt. Um, I, I the main venue that I recruit is using online platforms. Um, um, l- try to find out within this hit and population who the the who the offenders are and uh, and and start a one on one pre screening process with them um, and asking them questions about their past experience before I actually start to interview them. So um, if they pass a pre screening interview, then I will go ahead and interview them on on site and take them through uh, a set of questions that I have uh, uh, pre 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 composed and uh, and get their immediate feedback in that in that real store environment so that's essentially how I, I go about it um, in this project specifically yeah that's really excellent feedback and um, it helps us kind of think through and I think thinking is a big part of what we try and do is really understand we'll read what other scientists uh, have thought and done and what their research has found in this case around uh, front-end fraud and around offender interviewing, you know, how they do it, what they found, and so forth. And we're, of course, trying to guard against uh, bad data. We don't want to encourage them, get them the same things that aren't accurate, and they're pretty good at doing that on their own. Um, And so we try and be and weed that out and try and understand, uh, no, that's, you know, we need the most accurate information we can. Um, And so that's part of the interviewing process. Um, We're trying to do a couple things. One, we're trying to get them to recall things about their decisions and what has influenced them, but they're also trying to put them mentally in that place and time where they might be thinking about and might go ahead and start to initiate and, and progress an act, a criminal act, um, trying to get them in there in that place and time in their head and, and have them in their experiencing self uh, as well as the re- recalling self. Um, Tom, I'll go over to you, see what kind of questions or comments you might have for uh for Stephanie Lynn. Thanks, Reed. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, Stephanie, the, the self-checkout um, study was actually really well-received and people actually reached out to me on it. I, I have a couple questions. Just in the whole process, in um, specific to the self-checkout, was there any surprises, anything any offender said to you that you would have really not thought you would have heard? I don't think there are a ton of surprises around this topic. However, I was surprised by how many offenders uh, said about the same thing. So when I interviewed these people um, and when I asked them, why do you choose self-checkout as your method of theft? Uh, Many of them indicated that they thought it is, first of all, easy to shoplift from. And uh, second of all, they thought it's harder for them to prosecute or for the retailers to prosecute. Um, So um, the easiness, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but the harder to prosecute one was really uh, surprising to me um, because that's not necessarily the case. Many offenders indicated that uh, even if they get caught, they can always say that, um, you know, they have been distracted when they check out or um, uh, 
they can always say that your you know your self checkout kiosks are too complicated and due to its complexity, I um you know I thought I ring this item up but I didn't. It's it's not on me. This is on your machine, and so they 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 have this kind of mindset that they can always get out of these situation when when they even if they get caught. Um, so I was really surprised that they thought that self checkout theft is it's harder to prosecute than all the other crimes uh, happening within the, the 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 retail industry. So I, I know that you know I I lived this for almost twenty years, and when when I hear Reed say the see fear get like a, the perception of risk, I always um, you know think of self checkout and and back in. The early 2000s and late 90s, I worked for Home Depot when they rolled self-checkout. And I remember some of the concerns and living it in that environment and really trying to figure out how, how, it, how it really comes into play. So it, throughout the, the, the whole entire process related to offender interviews and self-checkout, were there some, you know, what are the two or three key takeaways for retailers uh, without you know getting into it too in depth because everybody should read it if they haven't already. Based on what your offenders said, what are some of the takeaways that retailers could implement? I think the main thing that I wanted to point out is uh, the role of employees in those uh, in those situations. So many many offenders have indicated that either the presence of uh, additional employees or pres- uh, pres- uh, presence of attentive self checkout employees would deter them from theft. So that extra set of eyes on them is going to be really helpful when it comes to deter uh, sh- uh, offenders from self checkout um, fraud. Um, many offenders have also indicated that you know there's two uh, schools of thoughts when it comes to employees presence in in in, in deterring shops uh, self-checkout theft so in in one group of offenders they indicated that hey as long as there are employees there and they are attentive they are you know overseeing and manning the area um, as if they are you know paying attention to all the customers you know transactions and their and their and and their actions in those situations then it is a good enough uh, deterrent um, for them to to not to shoplift Uh, in other cases we have offenders indicated that um, you know if the customer if the employee comes up to me and asks if I need any help asks if there's anything if everything is okay then that sort of that level of um customer service and engagement would definitely deter them from theft. So essentially, there are people who just say, hey, just have employees there, and that's enough. And if they are uh, attentive, and we also have a a different group saying that, hey, customer engagement um, or customer service is uh, a a key to deter offenders in in the self-checkout. And did you have have any... Of the offenders, when you're in room, talk about creative ways to steal or different ways to take advantage of that you were first time hearing, for instance. So a lot of times uh, when I did interviews, they would actually educate the early adopters of theft or was it all the common themes? Yeah, um, definitely. There are two incidents that I recall really clearly uh, about that. Um, So first, I have a offender telling me that he will usually engage 
the employees to to help her succeed in an event. So she will pretend to be a, a normal customer and re- ring up items. And you know, um, for some reason, uh, there is some some stipulation that she does that will you know that will call for uh, employee uh, or employees action. So she will engage with the employees act as if she is a, a normal shopper and once employee left the scene or left the, that station and she will go about and you know start sweethearting through self-checkout. Uh, another incident that I recall is this gentleman that I interviewed in her in his um early 20s, I would say, that specifically said that he will usually hire somebody on the street um, that's a lot younger, uh, probably around like, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old. And, uh, and and he will go in with this the, with this little kid because he indicated that the employee's attention will be totally different once you have a kid with you. So he perceived or he thinks that employee will perceive him as a, you know, just a, a brother who's taking his little brother to a store to shop and wouldn't perceive him as somebody that would will, will likely be stealing. Therefore, less attention will be diverted to this person who's trying to steal from self-checkout. So those are the two incidents that I, I think I recall really clearly that I, I thought their method of, of um, operation is very interesting. Wow, that's a that's great insight. So, you know, I, I think the self checkout uh, study is a great in, in segue into offender interviewing. But I know that you've done a lot more than that. Um, you know, when you're when you're thinking about developing the questionnaire, what's the what's the process? How do you start developing questions? Um, from my perspective, you know, interview and interrogation from a retail side is very different. There's a very systematic organized approach that really doesn't change that much and then when you get into or see interviews there's questionnaires so from you know from your seat how do you develop a questionnaire what are what are some of the steps you take to come up with the questions the the first step um when developing a questionnaire is definitely making sure that we understand the objective of this research. Uh, what are the hypotheses that we want to test? What are some of our suspicions that we wanted to maybe clear that out during this research process? What are um, what are some of the things that the retailers would like to know or that will help the, their overall mitigation strategies and deployment process of a solution? So the questions that we come up with usually are in relationship with those ideas and just making sure that our, our survey questionnaire are uh, clear, concise, and direct. Um, so we try to avoid any complex statements or technical jargons um, as it will usually only confuse the offenders and lead to incorrect responses, um, especially when we talk to some offenders who doesn't necessarily have a high level of education. Um, we want to make sure that we are delivered the, the, the statement or the, um, the question um, as, as brief as possible so that you know their their memory span won't uh, will, will last during those couple seconds that we state the question as well as making sure that they understand the question um, that we are asking in order for us to de- derive at a um, consistent um, um, result from from those people 
And uh, there are all sort of different questions that we ask during um, during uh, in our survey interviews. So we will um, sometimes ask uh, dichotomous questions where it's uh, yes and no, agree or disagree. It's the quickest and the simplest question to analyze, but not necessarily the high highly sensitive measure. We a lot of times will ask you know open ended questions. Uh, these questions will allow the offenders to respond to their in. in their own words, and uh, they can be useful for gaining insights into the feelings of those offenders. Um, but it, it can also be challenging when it comes to to analyze the data. Um, it, uh, however, we we do recommend a lot of those in, in our in our in our sampling because um, these are the questions that retailers tend to get the most insights from, and uh, they they will love to hear more about offenders. Um, Response in their own words, rather than confining to a a uh, a pre-existing set of uh, answer choices. We also do you know multiple choice questions, rank order questions, and and things in those nature. Um, so yeah, back to you, Tom. I've got a quick question here, um, Stephanie, for you. Um, and as you well know, could you explain to the audience? Um, you know, we have different places that we conduct interviews. We might conduct them in office. We might conduct them in the wild, as we call it, or out in a place where there's context, um, a parking lot, a store, uh, whatever's relevant. Can you explain the difference and uh, an example of uh, the different types of interview venues or locations and why one might be better than another, depending on what we're doing? Yeah, definitely. Um, depending on the scope of the project, the the interview, the interviews can be conducted in our lab store, or um, that's a real store lab, or in our innovation lab, or even in the parking lot, as we has referred to. And I have actually conducted um, interviews on the streets um, because that um, because the scope of the project requires me to go beyond the parking lot. Um, the, the interviews that were conducted in our lab is definitely more controlled. Um, the interviews usually go uh, really smoothly like we expect. Um, but the, the innovation lab doesn't necessarily mirror a real store environment exactly. Um, so offenders won't necessarily experience uh, any commotion and even in some situation, hacticness when the, the holiday rolls around. For instance, um, there aren't any uh, customer or staff, um, which will, will in some sense impact the way offenders perceive the, the environment and the technology in that environment. So in many cases we will need to conduct interviews especially offender interviews in the store uh, so so that um, to get their most immediate feedback um, and reactions towards uh, toward those um, technologies or in that environment um, for in terms of uh, of customer surveys that we do, we, we do them in parking lots as well as in store settings. Um, and so I have also gone beyond parking lots to conduct customer, uh, to conduct offender interviews um, in Los Angeles where I interview a homeless population and get their feedback on a solution that we have, uh, that we have implemented in the West. So, um, yeah. So, um, you don't have to necessarily address this. I know that we did. We had an earlier uh, podcast episode where we talked to uh, Dr. Mike Chicatano uh, of the University of Florida on uh, some of his experiences, um, domestic and wild, 
with offender interviewing, but we discussed there the IRB or the Institutional Review Board. And again, anytime uh, that any academic institution conducts uh, human subject or participant research, we, of course, uh, write up the protocol that we'll be using. Um, we submit that to the IRB uh, at the University of Florida. We have four IRBs, so we go to IRB2, which is behavioral um, research. And so uh, we're going to tell them what we're, what we're trying to find and how we're trying to find it. And uh, they'll come back with some critiques and changes. Um, always, always we're trying to protect um, the subjects that the research that we conduct cannot result in any harm to the participants or subjects. So um, the same thing, of course, with interviewing offenders. We've got to be very careful there. Stephanie, is there anything you do with uh, regarding the IRB with a notification or anything like that? Uh, yes. And before I kind of answer that question, I wanted to uh, bring up another interesting topic that is the challenges that we we, we tend to incur uh, when we do this type of recruiting and interviewing of the offenders. And uh, so there, uh, one of the biggest challenge is to ensure that there are trust between us. Um, there is a lot of times a lack of trust in us and in them because they have not previously worked with us before. They don't know why we are collecting this information, how we are going to use this information, and if, if we are going to use this information that we collected uh, against them that will lead them to legal issues or, you know, in, or even in some case prosecution. Um, sometimes we need to set up additional calls with them to square away concerns um, and we will provide IRB, um, that is the written consent that we has just mentioned, uh, to outline the objectives of the, of the research, how the information that, will, uh, that we could conduct that will be used and uh, we'll essentially provide them with this form that will guarantee the, the information that we will be collecting will not be used prop to prosecute them, uh, which is a major concern when they conduct um, the interviews with us. They always have this uh, uncomfortable, uneasy feeling um, before we provide this information to them. And sometimes, even in some cases, even if we provide this, they, they are still not willing to, to, to come forth and talk about their experience with us. Thanks for that, Stephanie. Um, one other thing I want to touch on is, uh, since we've talked about conducting interviews in the in that place that uh, is relevant to get the real context and much much more accurate data, um, we're in the wild. Um, what are some safety precautions you've taken, or that our team takes? Uh, let's say if you're the interviewer, the researcher, um, to make sure that you're safe and secure. We've talked about making sure that the interviewee um, is protected, but from your standpoint. It's going to be dependent upon the, the project and the population that we are going to interview. Uh, if it's customer and associates, obviously there wouldn't be any concern. We will be in the store and there are securities all around the store to kind of protect our safety. Um, but when it comes to, uh, to offender interviews, um, depend, again, depending on the population we will be interviewing, um, the, the, we, we take different measures to protect our safety in those environments. So if it's only shoplifter, um, shoplifters, then uh, we, you know, we, we will have some sort of um, 
prior conversation with them. We'll chat with them before uh, we start an interview with them. Make sure that they are not verbally uh, combative or abusive and make sure that, you know, they are reasonable people to talk to. And uh, usually in those cases, we will uh, we'll go ahead and interview them in our, in our store or in our innovation lab where there are either employees or our uh, our or my colleagues around the area that can uh, ensure that, you know, the process goes um, smoothly. Um, but when it comes to higher um, level offenders, um, including the, the past offenders that we have interviewed that are homeless and some of them are opioid users, these populations um, are tend to be a little bit um, riskier when it comes to us interviewing them. Uh, but still, we will, you know, we will have uh, another person there with us just to ensure our safety. Excellent. Tom, any uh, follow-up or other questions for Stephanie? No, I, I think you uh, hit about everything. The only, the only question I had was really left was related to the offender panel this year. And um, it was different, you know, at least from the ones I remember they were almost all always externally driven uh, in relationship to the internal panel. I was really intrigued because internal is, is all, it's always a little different having them come up and speak. What, if you could just, for the folks that weren't at the impact conference that are listening, one, everybody who's listening really should be there. It's the best conference out there. Then two, can you give some takeaways on uh, maybe the top three takeaways that we learned from interviewing an internal offender versus an external? directly related to the panel folks? Sure. Um, so the, the idea of the internal offender panel actually came about our understanding of this growing issue of internal theft. Um, employee theft is um, actually the second leading source of inventory shrinkage um, as conducted by a survey by Dr. Hollinger. And uh, even the main, um, even one the main cause among some of the retailers. So we wanted to help our retailers to understand the underlying causes of these activities, uh, the psychology of these offenders, and why um, they they choose to um, conduct theft um, from their employees. So at the at the conference, we we brought two offenders with internal theft experience and interviewed them on stage to provide uh, additional insights into this growing issue. Um, we ask questions around the lines of along the lines of you know why do you decide to steal from your employee how did you take uh, you know cash or merchandise from your employer um, and what can the retailer especially the store management can do to deter them from committing such deviant behavior in the future um, I think one of the main uh, main takeaway for them to to steal from, their employer is that uh, both of them indicated that when they are hired, they they were promised more hours, um, and um, along uh, along the their their employment period, they their hours decreased little by little, and uh, they tried to talk to the management. They try uh, to you know to get. Um, get additional job but it doesn't really work out so um so the way they go about it is to default to a a, a less uh, preferable um um not so preferable um option is to steal from them to make up for that uh promise hour that you know the store management has originally scheduled uh, for them to work 
You know, and Tom, I was going to add that because um, that's an excellent question and a great uh, way to harness and leverage what we're talking about here today on, uh, how, you know, offender interviews, that how that type of data informs, you know, what we need to be doing and doing better here uh, to prevent the, these incidents. Um, and so what Stephanie's talking about and tease, the one thing that she was able to tease out from them is some of the precipitating factors, because we know that there are things that are always these somewhat stable differences between an indi- one individual and another, you know, what they, their genetics or genomics, you know, what they've been through in their life, their peer groups and the pressures and things that they uh, are experiencing themselves. You know, there's differences about a place. It could be one store versus another is different, both the, ba- the way it's built and what their assets are and, and, and so forth, but also the culture, you know, the, the manager, the leadership in there and their style, and then sort of the, the morale and other culture that's in there, those, that varies. And then the situation itself, right then and there, so that person, they come to the party with whatever, um, the way they think and process in the world, uh, and who they blame and so forth, uh, and then they're in that particular location. Well, now, according to them, and you know, we're always skeptical of all data, uh, in particular interview data, um, what's the situation? Well, they're both separately um, uh, brought up on their own. Hey, you know what? They didn't describe as this, but here's a precipitating factor in my mind. In my mind, I was promised this. This was my expectation. That location, that person didn't meet my expectation, so I'm going to do something about it. And again, that kind of decision can happen immediately uh, and opportunistically, or it could take place over time. Um, and then finally, what method they use to uh, carry it out, the, what they did. And then, of course, what Stephanie or the rest of our team, we're going to now try and find out, okay, given this, that, and the other, what are things that we can do to change that condition? We can't change them uh, everybody's, um, you know, backgrounds or genomics and things like that, but we can change and affect anyway the built environment, of course, the culture and how we treat people and what we do um, and how are they compensated and, and so forth. We can try and vet and uh, people before they come into the workplace so they are sort of naturally happy, healthy, productive, honest people um, and good to work with. Um, and then what are some technologies and tactics we need to enforce, you know, to maintain some control there in that place. So that's all the things that came from those interviews uh, as opposed to what Stephanie described before at the front end and how to protect it. So any last questions, Tom, from, from you? No, I, no last questions for me. I just want to thank you, Stephanie, for taking the time. I know that the listeners will enjoy it. Okay. So Stephanie, I think what I'll do is one last question. Do you have any uh, uh, interview projects coming up uh, as far as theft or fraud or violence uh, that are coming up in uh, 2019? Yeah, um, I have a, a variety of projects on under horizon here. One of the things, or one of the projects, being a, a enhancement of um, of the self checkout research that I've done. Um, so through my research uh, from that from that self checkout um, project, I a lot of offenders have been reporting that the way uh, a, a way to enhance the, the solutions that we we were testing in the environment. So I'm gonna use their feedback and uh, adjust the technology and conduct additional um, uh, offender interviews to see if that enhance um, solution is make really making an impact on their behavior and on their you know on whether or not they they they, they attempt to steal from the store so um that's one of uh that's one of the things that i'll be working on in the next next quarter or so
All right. Well, excellent. And I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, we use the interview process to help us initially make sense from the uh, the offender perspective about what they're seeing and how they're responding in, in a parking lot, in a store, in a distribution center, um, or whatever the environment might be. Um, and then now we're looking for opportunities along with other data that we might get from the literature, you know, past research, uh, or from others, you know, practitioners. And now we're going to put together some things and trial them. But now we can go back and then we can go back and talk to offenders and get an idea of, all right, how we may see on video, we may get an idea through other uh, signatures or signals out there what's going on. But we also go back and talk to offenders, sometimes the same ones. Uh, and sometimes additionally some new ones, hey, what adjustments or tweaks do we need to make? Because it's not what you do, but how you do it. And then even more importantly, how you keep it fresh. So um, I just want to thank everybody out there for joining uh, Tom Meehan, myself, uh, my colleague, Stephanie Lynn. Uh, so reporting to you from Gainesville, Florida, from the Lost Prevention Research Council, and myself from the University of Florida, uh, this is Dr. Reed Hayes. I want to thank um, our producer, as always, uh, Mr. Kevin Tran. And uh, everybody have a fantastic time, and we appreciate you listening to Crime Science, the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Office Prevention Research Council.